This morning we turn to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 through 6, and before we look, before we begin reading this passage, just want to set it up and set the context for these verses, verses 1 through 6. We started looking at this epistle some weeks ago in the afternoon service, so some of you might not have heard it. But in that first study, we identified at least seven reasons for which John wrote this epistle. And I will give you them very quickly. You can use this as a sort of cheat sheet. If someone were to say, what is the epistle of 1 John all about? And I'm sure as we list these seven things, we'll see the great blessing they can be or ought to be to our lives. John was writing, number one, to facilitate fellowship among believers with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We see that in chapter 1 and verse 3. Secondly, he was writing to inspire fullness of joy. He said he wanted the believer's joy to be full. Third, to deter believers from sinning, chapter 2, verse 1. Fourth, to encourage love among the brethren, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 2. Fifth, to affirm the reality of the believer's salvation, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Six, to protect believers from false deceptive teachers, chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. And seventh, to foster personal assurance of salvation, chapter 5 and verse 13. In chapter 1, we saw how that John, addressing the subject of fellowship with God, of what it means to walk with God, to be in harmony with God, we saw that for John, fellowship with God is the basis for fellowship one with another as Christians. We learned that fellowship with God is rooted in at least three realities. First, fellowship with God is rooted in the reality of an eternal yet historical incarnate Savior. Now that might sound big, but here's why it is important. Fellowship with God is rooted in the reality of an eternal yet historical incarnate Savior. This was crucial in John's day because there was a heretical sect which denied the real humanity of Christ as the eternal divine Son of God. So that John emphatically states in verses 1 to 3, he says this, that which was from the beginning referring to the Lord Jesus, which we have seen, which we have handled, which we have looked upon, he says we have seen that eternal life and declare that life to you. He was referring to the Lord Jesus and he's saying, look, Jesus Christ is real. Although he is eternal, although he is divine, he is yet bona fide human. This defense of the real humanity of Christ was a huge deal because in John's day, there was a sect known as the Gnostics. The Gnostics held that anything that partook of matter, anything that was physical, was therefore evil, was evil, and therefore that the Lord Jesus Christ, being the divine Son of God, could not have been human. He could not have been a man because the the real God, the God of pure spirit, has nothing to do with physicality or materiality. 
they also said, and not surprising, that the good God, a good God, or rather in their term, the good God did not create this world. But it is important that we affirm the humanity of our Lord Jesus. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, Scripture tells us, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, there is no remission of sins. That is why we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 17, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So for John, the real humanity of Christ was huge. We learned then that fellowship with God, secondly, according to the Apostle John, is rooted in the reality of God's holy standards. We see that in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1, and implied in these verses is that the reality of God's holy standard involves a few things. It involves one or recognizing his holy and righteous character. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Two, the reality of God's holy standards involves our refraining from the path of sin. First John 1, 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, and here darkness is a metaphorical reference to sin. He says we lie and do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Recognizing the reality of God's holy standards implies cleansing through the blood of the Lord Jesus. Verse 7, because he says there, and the blood of Christ, Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The reality of God's holy standard involved, fourthly, our coming clean with God with regard to our sins. Our coming clean with God with regard to our sins. First John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we're here in 1 John 2 verses 1 through 6, the Apostle John discusses at length the subject of sin in the life of the believer in Christ. That's what 1 John 2, 1 through 6 is all about. John is discussing the subject of sin in the life of a professing Christian. With regard to the issue of sin, there were at least two major errors concerning which John warned his readers. One such error we could describe as misguided perfectionism. Misguided perfectionism. The idea that one could, in this life, attain to what some refer to as sinless perfection, or, as it is referred to in some circles, entire sanctification. John alluded to this error back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, when he declared, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. John right there, beloved, debunks this idea that you and I can in this life attain to sinless perfection. Let me say here that regardless of spiritual maturity, regardless of how long we have been walking with the Lord, we never, we never get to the place where we can say, I have stopped sinning. It's not going to happen. Not even with the best of intentions. So the first error that the Apostle John had to contend with is what I call misguided perfectionism. But a second error concerning which John warned his readers could be described as brazen antinomianism. You say, what in the world is that? The notion that one's private, privileged knowledge of and connection with God precluded any need for holy, godly living. Do you know some people were teaching that in John's day? Who were they? The Gnostics. The Gnostics had a teaching which said, look, in order to get to the God of pure spirit, one had to go through a series of what they call demiurges. So in, think of it this way. You have in an ascending ladder, so to speak, different levels of deity. Down here would be the creator God, the God who created this world because this world is evil, so this is a lesser God. Jesus would be somewhere in that pantheon. And then the true God of pure spirit, they said, was the true and best God, so to speak. And to get to know this God, to get to this God, you had to have a password. In other words, one had to have secret knowledge. That's how we get the idea of Gnostic Gnosis, knowledge. One had to be privy to this password, to this mystical password, in order to get through to the divine. So what some were saying, well, as long as I know God, it doesn't really matter how I live. In fact, I can do anything with this body. I can indulge this body. I can live in sin to the max with this body because, after all, this body is evil. Might as well live it up. The most important thing is my connection with God. Do you know Gnosticism is still with us today? Because here's the truth. There are some people that will tell you, and they will tell you with conviction that they know God. I know God. You don't watch my life. I have a connection with God. You see, I know God. Have you ever heard that? Yes, I have. So, as a stern corrective to this heresy of antinomianism, here John in 1 John 1 verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, that is with God, with Christ, while we walk in darkness, that is in sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. And this is how John is continuing this train of thought, the idea of the need for holiness here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There are at least four matters that John brings to attention in this passage. First of all, we see in this passage the prohibition of sin in the believer's life. Look at verse 1a. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In this verse, we find one of the main functions of Scripture, the written word of God, which is to prompt and stir us to holiness of life, to make us godly in our walk. That was why the psalmist could declare, as he did in Psalm 119 and verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How true the saying, and you have heard it, you must have heard it, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. We can never be holy, we can never be godly, we can never strive for godliness, for purity of life, apart from the word of God. It is the word of God that cleanses, that sanctifies our lives. Our Lord Jesus made that clear in John chapter 17, verse 11, his high priestly prayer, where he prayed, he prayed to the Father concerning his disciples, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. And this was a most timely and necessary statement from the Apostle John because as we suggested back in chapter 1 verse 5, sin represented by the imagery of darkness is contrary to the nature and character of God because John said there in 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all which necessarily means that God being the holy and righteous God he is, God being the thrice holy God he is, cannot tolerate even the slightest hint or modicum of sin in the lives of his people. Listen, sin is repulsive in the, in the nostrils, in the face of a holy and righteous God. Sin is like a stench in his holy nostrils. And if we want to understand something of the seriousness of sin, we have to consider, we only have to look back to Calvary to see what sin did to our Lord Jesus Christ, who was pierced for our iniquities, who was bruised for our transgressions, the word of God says. As Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says of this holy God, he is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So this command, this writing of the Apostle John in 1 John 2 verse 1, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin, shows us or hints at the gravity of sin, that sin is no light matter, that sin can never be tolerated in the lives of God's people by the holy and righteous God of heaven. 
For John's sin in the life of the child of God is forbidden. Why? Because sin in the life belies one's claim of having fellowship with God. For he says there, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and are not practicing the truth. John is saying we're making a false claim of being in fellowship with God, in being in harmony with God. We're actually playing the hypocrite, pretending to be what we're not. If we're simultaneously dabbling in sin, that's what John is saying. And I want to say this, my friends, you might not be known by others. I might not know everything about you. You might not know everything about me. But here's the point. God sees and knows our lives. And the word of God makes it clear that if any is living in sin, however much one talks about God, however much one feels about God, in fact, you could love to pray, you could love to read your Bible, you could love to listen to the preaching of the Word of God. If you are tolerating sin in your life, if you are walking in sin, you, the Bible says, are lying. You are not in fellowship with God. In fact, John is going to say later on, you do not know God. And that is very serious. That is very serious. So the question this morning is, where are we in our walk with God? Where are you in your walk with God this morning? Are you committed to a life of holiness and godliness? Third, this statement of the Apostle John, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, was most timely, it was most necessary because, you see, it is of sinful human nature. Listen, it is of sinful human nature. The reason why John could write those words because it is of sinful human nature to misuse and pervert a particular truth of the word of God. Go back to chapter 1, verse 9. You see, there in chapter 1, verse 9, John had assured his readers, he said to his readers, he wrote to his readers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And no doubt the antinomians had a field day with this. The Gnostics had a field day with this because they said, in effect, if this is true, if it is true that when I sin, I can ask God for forgiveness, then what's the big deal? Just sin and ask God for forgiveness. How many today are duped into thinking that they can knowingly, deliberately engage in this or that activity, in this or that sin, and all they have to do, they say, is to simply seek God's forgiveness. Why? Because God is such a loving and merciful God, so that if I confess, he will then forgive me. What they fail to realize is that the forgiveness of God is related not just to his mercy, it's related not just to his grace, but as 1 John 1 verse 9 indicates, we must not miss a critical word in 1 John 1 verse 9. God's forgiveness is related to God's justice. Do you see that? He says if we confess our sins, he is faithful, and yes, we can bank on that. But notice what's the next attribute of God. He is just. He's a just God. He's a holy God. And my friends, that God forgives us on the basis of his justice tells us that his forgiveness is not cheap. His forgiveness is not cheap because his justice, you see, demanded the infliction of his wrath on Christ for your sins and mine. 
Think of the agonies that our Lord Jesus went through. Think of the horrors of the cross. Think of the enormity of our sin that confronted him as our sins or iniquities were hurled at him such that he was led to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that cry we have there an echo of lost souls who will one day feel as it were the whole wrath of God being inflicted on them as they are cast away from his presence. That's the awfulness of sin. And that's why John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's saying, beloved, sin is not a light matter. God takes sin seriously. God is just. And the only reason, the only basis on which, or we could say, not just on his mercy, not just on the basis of his love, but on the basis of his justice, not just on his love and his mercy, but on his justice that he forgives our sins, someone had to pay. Someone had to suffer his just wrath, and that was our Lord Jesus who absorbed in himself the intensity of God's wrath in all its fullness, in all its fury. And so John insists here in 1 John 2 verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The word of God is unequivocally clear that part of God's purpose for those whom he has redeemed is that they might be holy. If you ask the question, why was it that God saved you and me, not just to get us out of hell, not just an insurance ticket to secure our eternity, but one of the reasons God saved you and me is so that we might be holy. We see this in such places as 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Ephesians 1 verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. 1 Peter 1 15 and 16, but as he who called you is holy, be also holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he saved us and called us with a holy calling. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands sure, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So in this passage, John lays out, first of all, he makes it clear, we see, first of all, the prohibition of sin in the life of the believer. But secondly, we see in this passage the potential for sin in the life of the believer. On the one hand, the prohibition of sin in the life of the believer. On the other hand, we are considering now the potential for sin in the life of the believer. Notice what John says there. Look at the B part of verse 1. First of all, he says, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. Here's the B part. But if anyone does sin. Certainly one of the most vexing discouraging experiences, particularly of those who are young in the faith, is the pull and prompting of sin to which they at times succumb. And the question they therefore raise, whether vocally or mentally, is why is it that those saved, though redeemed by the grace of God, and why is it that even though I pray, even though I have my daily intake of the word of God, I still find myself sinning. 
One short, simple answer is this, that although the believer in Christ, get this, although the believer in Christ is a new creation in Christ, the word of God makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Although the believer in Christ possesses the righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the believer in Christ, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 6, retains, here it comes, retains a body of sin. That's what Paul calls it. A body in which sin dwells and wars against the mind. Romans 7 and verse 23. The Apostle Paul, as we saw some time ago in Romans chapter 6, makes it, made it clear that sin lurks in the members of our bodies. That's why it's easy for us to look at the wrong things. It's easy for us to go the wrong places. It's easy for us to think the wrong things. It's easy for us to use our hands in the wrong way. One commentator puts the matter into perspective, and properly so, I believe, when he wrote, quote, After salvation, sin, like a deposed and exiled ruler, no longer reigns in a person's life, but it manages to survive. It no longer resides in the innermost self, but finds its residual dwelling in his flesh that is in unredeemed humanness that remains, end quote. I think I would ought to modify that a bit. That's coming from John MacArthur, and who am I? John MacArthur is a very much respected teacher, but I would just say that Paul actually says, Romans chapter 6, verse 6, it resides in our bodies, our physical bodies, not just in the flesh, which is you know, the ethical flesh, but in terms of our physical flesh. Sin resides there. That's what the Word of God says. And the fact is, irrespective of our spiritual maturity, as I said earlier, irrespective of how long we have been walking with the Lord, there will always be a battle between the flesh and the spirit, between the sins at work in our body and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The flesh referring to our fallen nature was not eradicated at salvation, but will ultimately be removed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, here's the point. When God saved you and me, it's important we understand this, that our flesh, that is our sinful fallen nature, was not removed. In fact, one man says the flesh is so wicked and sinful, he did not bother to touch it. What he simply did when he saved us is to give us a new nature, place his Holy Spirit in us. And then here's what's happened. In consequence of that, Galatians 5, 17, the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. And these two are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you want. That is why in Romans chapter 7, Paul, in frustration, uttered these words. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. He says, I want to do the good, but I find evil is present within me every time I want to do good. I find myself doing just the opposite. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He says, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks of the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, so then, by the Spirit, I serve the law of God. And of course, what with the flesh? The flesh really is no good. 
That believers do sin from time to time is suggested by the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 8 and 10. As we saw earlier, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a land. The truth is not in us. So as we often say, the Christian is not one who is sinless. Rather, the Christian is one who sins less. John says, I don't want you to sin. That's why I'm writing to you. Do not sin. But just in case you sin. Just in case. But if any man does sin. So we come now to the provision for sin in the believer's life. We have looked at the prohibition of sin in the believer's life. The potential for sin in the believer's life. And now thirdly, the provision for sin in the believer's life. Here it comes, my friends. Verses 1 and 2. The C part of verse 1. And on to verse 2. He says, if any man sins, we have an advocate. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, in these verses, we find two encouraging, assuring provisions believers in Christ have in the event they sin. Some believers might become so discouraged. They say, you know, I'm battling, I'm, I'm waging this war against sin. I don't want to sin. And here's what John says by way of comfort, by way of assurance. He's not talking to those who love sin and who are making a habit of sin, those who are practicing sin. He's talking about the genuine believer who is battling with sin, who does sin. He says, listen, don't worry. If any man should sin, we have certain provisions. And in these verses, as we said, John cites two encouraging provisions. First of all, John points out that in Christ we have a representative who argues in our defense before God. That's a provision we have. Whenever we sin, we have, first of all, a representative who argues our case, who argues in our defense before God. Here's what John says. We have, and that verb have in the Greek is present continuous. Literally, the idea is this. We are having, that is to say, we are always having, an advocate with the Father. That word advocate in the Greek speaks of one who provides legal defense. It actually has three basic ideas in the Greek. One who provides legal defense. The word also has reference to an intercessor or to a helper. That is to say, one who comes alongside another because that's what the etymology of the word suggests. Paracletus, one who comes alongside another to help oftentimes in crisis. Now listen, all of these capacities Christ bears to the believer. But based on the context of our passage, the reference to Christ or advocate seems more to have in view his capacity as our, call it, defense attorney or defense. The one who advocates for us when we incur the guilt of sin. John says, but if anyone should sin... We have, we are having an advocate with the Father. In Christ, he's saying we have a defense attorney. And now the question is, what is it that renders the advocacy of our defense attorney, the Lord Jesus Christ, most potent, most effective? Why is it that his advocacy on our behalf is so powerful and is always effective? Let me suggest at least three things from the text. Notice, first of all, his connection. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ is an effective advocate, effectively intercedes for us when we sin because of his privileged connection. Look at verse 2. He says there, we have an advocate. Here it comes, with the Father. Beloved, that is huge. Sometimes you hear of a defense attorney. Here's a person who is in big trouble. And the defense attorney said, you know, don't worry, I can talk to the prosecutor. Have you ever heard that? I can talk to, I know, have to know the prosecutor. What we're talking about, connections, connections. And the expression with the father speaks of his very special connection, his very special relation to the father. A relation in which he is one with the father, John chapter 10 verse 30. A relation in which he is greatly loved by the father. A relation in which he is well pleased, the father is well pleased with him. Matthew 3 verse 17, Matthew 17 verse 5. This is my beloved son, the father says of him, hear him, listen to him. A relation by virtue of which, by Jesus' own testimony, the Father always hears him. Every time our Lord Jesus prays, John eleven forty two, his Father always hears him. His Father always answers answer him. Which means that his work of advocating and interceding for defense before the Father will always be what? Honored. You see how powerful an attorney we have, or powerful a defense we have, or powerful a representative and intercessor we have, is powerful, is effective in his work of advocacy. Why? Because of his privileged connection. We have an advocate with the Father, with the Father, with the righteous judge, is what, our, is what John is saying. The advocacy of our Lord Jesus for us when we sin is most effective, not only because of his privileged connection, but secondly, Notice from the text, because of his perfect character. His perfect character. Notice in verse 2 how he is described. He says, we have an advocate with the Father. What kind of advocate is this? He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Perfect character. What's the point that I'm making? Our defense attorney is not shady. Our lawyer is not a liar. By the way, this is no aspersion against lawyers. Lawyers are very good people. But some lawyers are shady. Some lawyers, to get people off the hook, what they do, they buy into the lie. They run with the lie. I want to say this to you, that as our righteous advocate, our Lord Jesus Christ does not deny our guilt when we sin. He does not. He doesn't resort to any kind of falsehood or clever argumentation aimed at denying the fact that we have indeed sinned against God. He doesn't do that. Furthermore, he doesn't plead extenuating circumstances so as to mitigate the sins we have committed. He doesn't say, Father, you know, he did this because circumstances, you know, the weakness of the flesh. He doesn't do that. He's righteous. He's just. Sin must be punished. So how is he going to advocate our defense? And my beloved, this is not far-fetched. It is righteousness, the merits of his righteousness. He can say, Father, they are guilty, but they are clothed in my righteousness, which was imputed to them when they exercised faith and trust in me as their Savior 
and Lord. Isn't that very true? Isn't it true that when we were justified, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, how that we have been made the righteousness of God in him, so that when God looks on us, what with all our flaws, our sinfulness, he sees not our sins, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. Yes, Father, they are guilty. Normally, the wages of sin is death. They would have deserved to die. But they are bearing, they are donning my righteousness. As our righteous advocate, then he can at once acknowledge the fact of our guilt and appeal to the Father for us because of the merits of his holy, righteous character. And that righteousness of his we share when we place faith and trust in him. Because what does it mean to be justified? Being justified doesn't mean that God justifies us in a sense of explaining away our behavior, but he declares us righteous. He says not guilty because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But notice thirdly. The efficacy, the effectiveness of his advocacy, the, the potency of his advocacy for us when we sin is based not only on his perfect character and his privileged connection, but notice verse 2, it is based on his propitiatory sacrifice. Listen to the Apostle John. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, it looks like a big word, but it's not really a big word. Not if you know your Old Testament. <clears throat> the word propitiation derives from the concept, the idea of the mercy seat in the Old Testament. You remember on the Day of Atonement, as the high priest would go into the tabernacle, he would take some of the blood of the slain animal and he would sprinkle it toward the mercy seat. What was the mercy seat? The mercy seat was the covering of that chest in which was the Ten Commandments, the law. A lid had to be over that. Why? Because symbolically it was saying the law threatened wrath and judgment. It screamed judgment. So therefore, here it was covered and the Day of Atonement, blood is sprinkled. What's the idea of sprinkling the blood? The word mercy seat and its related word in the, that's translated here, propitiation. The word propitiation means satisfaction. In other words, God, on the day of atonement, when the priest sprinkled the blood toward the mercy seat, God's just wrath against sin was satisfied. Satisfied, why? Because blood was shed. For without the shedding of blood... There is no remission of sins. Of course, come two years after, come up to Calvary, where our Lord Jesus died. The perfect sacrifice, he shed his blood. He then became the perfect propitiatory sacrifice. And through his sacrificial atoning work on the cross, our Lord Jesus then satisfied the holy Wrath, the holy, righteous wrath of God, the justice of God that was levered against us on account of our sins. John is saying here, you're having a problem with sin, you're struggling with sin. I did write to you, I'm writing to you that you may not sin, but if you should sin, we have a defense attorney. And he's a powerful defense attorney. Why? Because he has 
privileged connection. He's an advocate with the Father. He has perfect character. He's righteous. And he has a most efficacious, a most effective propitiatory sacrifice because by his sacrifice, the just wrath of God was pacified against us. That's why he can vindicate our cause before God. That's why he can be our defense when we sin. Without mitigating our guilt, without denying our guilt, he can present the merits of his righteousness and the merits of his propitiatory, sacrificial work which he accomplished on the cross. And on that basis, God forgives us. Okay, the prohibition of sin in the believer's life, the potential for sin in the believer's life, the provision for sin in the believer's life. Finally, John speaks of the peril of sin in the believer's life. And John noticed in verses 3 and 4, a synonym John uses for sin in verse 4 is this, not keeping his commandments. What is sin? If you ask what is sin, sin is not keeping God's commandments. In fact, in 1 John 3, verses 8 through 10, whoever makes a practice of sinning, here's what John says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, we're not talking about a struggling believer who is conscientiously living for God, but is failing here, is failing there, is having some victory, but is failing. It's talking about the kind of person, the professing Christian, who just keeps sinning, sinning without regard for God's holiness, sinning without regard for his testimony, sinning, just sinning, just sinning, sinning, sinning. What word does John have for such? Listen. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, God's sperma, the word in the Greek is sperma, God's sperma, God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now John clearly, John clearly is very much concerned about professing believers who as a matter of lifestyle are sinning by not keeping Christ's commandments. Christ's commandments are not just the Ten Commandments. Christ's commandments embraces the whole slew, the whole litany of instructions that Christ gave through his apostles. We find them right through the New Testament. You want to know one of those? Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. When Christians fail to gather in God's name, when Christians fail to uphold the public worship of God, when they consistently do that, when they continually do that, and they can do better, they are, what? Sinning. Somebody says, I never heard that before. Well, that's what the Word of God suggests. Now, what according to John is the danger of a lifestyle of constant sinning, of constant disobedience to God? And I want to listen to this very quickly as we draw to a close. First of all, for John, Sinning habitually, not obeying the commandments of Christ, curtails our assurance of being saved. Sinning habitually, sinning willfully, living in sin, neglecting the word of God, doing your own thing. Here's what John says is the peril, is the danger of that if you are a professing believer in Christ. First of all, 
It curtails our assurance of being saved. You say, where is that in the text? Look at verse 3 where it's suggested. John says there, notice what John says. And by this we know that we have come to know him. How, John? If we keep his commandments. Did you see that? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now listen, contrary to the teaching of some, John makes it clear here that there is such a thing as the assurance of salvation that a believer in Christ can have some measure of knowing whether or not he or she is truly saved. You have questions, you have doubts. Here's what John says. By this we know that we know him. In fact, John uses three synonyms in verses 4 through 6 concerning what it means to be saved, to be saved. To be saved, first of all, is to know him. We see that in verse 4. To be saved is to be possessed with the truth of God. The truth is not in him. We see that in verse 4. We also notice that to be saved is to be in him, is to be in Christ. The question is, are you in Christ? You're either in or out. And to be saved is to abide in him. In John's writing, beloved, to know Christ means far more than being acquainted with a body of truths, a body of doctrinal theological truths. There are people who know theology. There are people who know the Bible inside out, but they don't know God, according to the Apostle John. Because the only way we can say that we know God, John makes it definitively clear that if there is sin in our lives, known sin that we are holding on to practicing, he says, that is going to make our profession of salvation suspect. And hence what is going to happen? It's going to curtail our assurance of salvation. According to John 17 verse 3, to know God and his son Jesus Christ is to be in possession of eternal life, which is what salvation is all about. And a valid, listen, a valid, legitimate assurance of salvation, John is warning here, John is cautioning here, is not, is not without a life of commitment to doing the will of God. That's what John is saying. In fact, twice in 1 John 2 verses 3 and 4, John links knowing Christ with obedience to his commandments. I want to ask you this question, as best as you know how, are you being obedient to the will and word of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you? We're not talking about sinless perfection, but where is the bent of your heart? More often than not, is it toward honoring God? Is it toward pleasing God? Or is it toward running your own show, doing your own thing, living for the devil, the world, for sin? John, as we said here, is not into legalism. John is not advocating salvation by works. Rather, his point is simply this, that to know Christ, that is to be acquainted with him in a saving way, in an experiential way, will necessarily issue in a life that honors the word of God by way of obedience to the known will and word of God. Not only is it that sinning that is not keeping Christ's commandment curtails our assurance, but notice secondly, the peril is this. It contradicts our claim of being saved. It not only curtails our assurance of being saved, but it contradicts our claim of being saved. Look at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, that is, I'm saved, but does not keep his commandment is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
John is not even saying that it's not possible for a Christian to backslide. He's not saying that. But what John is saying here is this, that if the whole tenor of our lives is of such that we live like the world constantly, we feel no sense of remorse, no sense of conviction. We're just going along. Sin is our way of life. John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his command, liar, the truth is not in him. Constantly sinning, not keeping Christ's commandment, not only curtails our assurance of being saved, but it contradicts our claim of being saved. And so what can we gather then from this text? John says that to be in a continual state of disobedience to God while claiming to know God, while claiming to be saved, renders one a liar, indicating that the truth does not reside in such a person. What John is saying here is this, regardless of how spiritually deep one claims to be, regardless of how knowledgeable one claims to be about the things of God, regardless of how one feels, even if one feels great excitement about the things of God, if one's life is not being conformed to the word of God, then that profession of faith is an empty profession, is what John is saying. And so the teaching of John in this passage serves to silence those who would make the claim, don't look at my life, don't judge me, for I know God. It lends a rebuke to those who are content to live in sin, claiming assurance of salvation under the doctrine of eternal security. Listen, I believe in the doctrine of eternal security. I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe that those who come to Christ and are saved are saved for keeps. But here's the point. Those whom God saves are going to persevere in the way of faith. In closing, look, let's look at what he says in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him truly do you see that? But whoever keeps his word, John is on to a positive end now. He says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Here it comes. By this we may know that we are in him. What does he mean when he said, in him truly the love of God is perfected? John is saying here that God's love for him, he's suggesting here that God's love for such a person becomes so real to that person, that person is impelled to honor God, to love God, to obey God. And in so doing, one has the assurance that one is in God, that one is truly saved. You see, he comes full circle in making the point that related to our salvation, to our knowing Christ, is our obedience to Christ. Where sin is habitually allowed free reign in our lives, there can hardly be any sense of the love of God, any real sense of our being saved, any assurance that we are ready to meet God. So that rather than walking in enjoyment of the love of God and the assurance of our being in him, we are always left wondering, hoping, wondering, doubting as to where we stand with him as regards the issue of salvation. Indeed, as someone has well said, Sin does jeopardize the victory and the vitality of our faith. May God impress these words on our hearts and minds. May he, where necessary, convict us. May he, where necessary, comfort us. May he keep us in his ways. These are days, my friends, when there needs to be a clear line in the sand between those who are of God and those who are not. Are we on the right side and what do we have to show for it? May God grant that these things we discuss in our text concerning what it means to be in fellowship with God, what it means to be truly saved may be evident in our lives. For his name's sake, amen.